Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that even when it confronts us with a language that is dissettling, that there with it is for all who might see the offer of peace through Jesus. So you pray, we pray that you help us resolve this tension in the only biblical way we can, and that is by reconciling ourselves to the cross. We pray this in your name. Amen. So today's sermon, as you may have uh, felt in the passage that was just read for us, uh, might as well be titled, Verses from Jesus That Didn't Make the Coffee Mug. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if you've seen the bumper stickers around town. Some of them say, uh, when I told you to love one another, I meant it, Jesus. We don't have a problem with those kind of bumper stickers. It doesn't offend anybody. It seems winsome, but I've seen so very few people with a t-shirt that says, let me dig around you and put manure on you. <laughs> there, there might be a country song to that end. I'm not familiar with it. But even more uncomfortably, um, we haven't seen bumper stickers that say, do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I've come to bring division. Jesus. But as this text was just read in Luke chapter 12, you may not have liked what Jesus was saying. And that's actually kind of the point of this text. As we've been working through the gospel of Luke, we've been in a portion where we've found Jesus calling us to reconcile what we know and what's going on in life, not on our own, but in relationship to Jesus and the current plan of redemption. You see, before you or I accept or reject any specific truth claim, we have to reconcile it. We have to reconcile it with some vantage point, typically ourselves, maybe the world apart from us. But Jesus is teaching us how we can understand what he's saying about our time, our current state in history, about our interpretation of it, what's going on, the implications of it, if this is going on and what I should do in light of it, And he's doing all of that in light of who he is and what he's come to do. That is the the vantage point by which we understand ourselves, our world, and our time is actually separated from us. And in our culture, specifically today, which elevates the individual above anything else, this seems really counterintuitive. But if Christianity is true, if the good news of the gospel is that uh, Jesus has done everything required to save sinners and restore us to God, then this is the only objective way that we can actually view reality and make sense of our world. The world brings anxiety and distress. No one can argue the opposite from experience. You show me that person and I'll show you an ignorant liar. But here in this text, we see, uh, as was just read for us, realities of distress and judgment intermixed with hope and peace. And there's one decoder ring that seems to organize these two things that stand at odds, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. We cannot understand our time, our own lives, or our circumstances unless we learn to reconcile it first and foremost as a habit in light of the person of Jesus, his cross, and his second coming. And while you might bristle at the language and urgency that Jesus himself gives here, You've got to wrestle with the reality of it. And that's what we're going to do today. And behind this weight is good news. 
And this is our main point today, is that our only hope in the crisis of life is in the crisis of Christ. Our only hope in the crisis of life, a crisis that each and every one of us know exists in our world, is in the crisis of Christ. When we understand the crisis of the cross, we can understand and respond to everything else rightly. But if we miss the significance of the cross, we all, each and every one of you, find yourself still in a crisis. And you know where we get that English word crisis? It's from the Greek word crisis. Isn't that cool? Uh, Seminary. Uh, It's spelled with a K though, so it's cooler. And that word, translated in your Bibles, is judgment. To reject the cross is to find yourself in a crisis of judgment. To see the cross is to see a crisis, judgment, but to find the offer of peace in the midst of it. And this is what we're going to see today. We're going to see the Christ, the Christ, and the crisis. And we're going to see this in three parts. First, in verses 29 through 50, we're going to see the Christ part one. And then we'll examine the crisis and how that applies to us in our current present time. And then in Jesus' final parable in chapter 13, we will see the Christ part two. Jesus is making himself and his work clear, and in the middle, he's speaking to us in our time. And so to begin, let's read our first two verses, uh, Luke 12, 49 through 50. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Here's our first point today. The Christ, part one. And what do we see about the Christ here? Well, we get an astounding window into Jesus' own emotional life. The New Testament authors carried by the Holy Spirit speak often of Jesus' heart, but here from Jesus' own mouth, he's using his own words to describe his own experience. He's inviting us in. And is this what you think you'd find in the heart of Jesus? Because we see two things here that we often forget or don't like to associate with Jesus. We see first that Jesus understands as his purpose this act of purifying, refining judgment. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth. That's probably not the first purpose statement you think about when you think about the call of the gospel and who Jesus is. And while Jesus came to do far more than that, we'll talk about that later, he's not squeamish or he's not unclear about this being part of his primary purpose. We cannot divorce the work of judgment from the will, the volition, the desire in Jesus and his own understanding of himself. To strip judgment from Jesus is to actually strip an essential part of Jesus' own understanding of himself. And if you've been following us closely, this comes as no surprise in the book of Luke. Jesus told us in Luke chapter 10 and in chapter 11 that part of why he came was to reveal hearts of unbelief in those who reject him. Simeon says in chapter 2, when Jesus was as an infant brought to the temple, he called Jesus a sign that would be opposed. Part of Jesus' work is to save, and the Bible says yes, and to do that abundantly. But part of Jesus' work is also to shore up a just sentence of condemnation for all who reject him. Jesus in the flesh was something we could almost think about as like a lead prosecutor brought onto a case to make sure that justice happens, that those who have committed a crime are seen and understand 
that they have violated it and they stand guilty under the law. He came to shore up our sentence of our guilt by making unbelief and rebellion plain through what? Through our response to him. He is both the prosecutor and the one whom all the sin is committed against. And so Jesus understands this act of judgment, not only as his purpose, that's the first thing, but secondly, he's not ashamed about it. Have you ever had to talk to anybody in sharing the gospel about judgment? Isn't there any other time we'd rather talk about politics than that? Like take the world's most uncomfortable situations. We're like, let's talk about that instead of talking about judgment. But did you see in this text, Jesus is actually like anxious in desiring it. He said, would that it were already kindled. This is a great example of what it looks like to reconcile this text first and foremost in light of who Jesus is and not on the natural inclinations of our hearts and not the world itself. It seems almost brutal. And maybe you're hearing this today and you're like, this Jesus is not a Jesus that I would want to follow, that he would want judgment to befall people. But we have to understand and reconcile everything in light of what scripture says. And actually your experience matters here too. Have you ever heard of individuals who get so disillusioned with society that they withdraw and try to make a commune or a new city? They move away. They leave behind the world they knew. And they attempt to create something from the ground up that's free of everything else that plagued every other civilization. They're going to be sharing people. They're going to have perfect systems, better roads, great infrastructure, endless education opportunities. They sterilize it by removing it from everything else. And you know what those people do? You know what's in their future? Crazy Netflix documentaries. (laughs) They always fall apart. They all fail. Jealousy, resentment, anger, deceit, and abuse all sneak their way back in. Why? In the words of our modern philosopher, Taylor Swift, (laughs) hey, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. You see, from a Christian worldview, sin is not something that exists apart from us. There's not this disease of COVID sin that's out here and sometimes you'll get it and sometimes you're clean. Sin is within us. Sin is a human problem. It might seem like an offensive reality to you. You might not like it, but look at human history itself. Wherever humans are, sin follows. We have this beautiful rainforest. And what happens? Humans show up. And all of a sudden, it's not so beautiful anymore. We carry with us not only the potential to steward the earth as God designs it, but selfish ambitions. You see, to long for a society where we no longer hurt. Do you want that? A society where we no longer steal, kill, abuse, offend, extort, is to actually long for a world that is purified from the source of sin. That is a world purified from the problem of sinners. Jesus makes this point in Mark 7, 20 through 23, when he says, it is not what comes into a person that defiles him, but what comes out. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within. They are what defile a person. 
It is a human problem. And to be rid of it, if you are honest and sober, means we need to get rid of humanity. Now hold on here. Because what's true is any sober individual has to come to this conclusion. I saw a tweet from a secular humanist uh, this week, and it was a poll. Over 100,000 people, or almost 100,000 people voted on this poll, and the prompt was this. Which universe is better? One with humans and one without humans. 58% said with humans. That might seem like a win for humanity. But think about it. 42% of all the people of that 100,000 who voted looked at our world and said, yeah, get rid of humans and we solve the problem. It is innate because we see it everywhere. The author of the poll was taken aback at this. He said, I need to wrestle with the reality that what so many of you think is true is to get rid of humans is what's better for society. But what it's revealing is even in the heart of our collective humanity, we get it, we see it, we know it. The problem is us. And actually, to be part of that 58% who thinks the universe would be better with humanity is to, to by necessity, have a foundationally Christian worldview. Because it's only the Christian worldview that admits that we were made inherently good in the garden, that humanity was good, but also that sin has now perverted and depraved humanity in full. And the tension of that is solved only in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only worldview that makes sense of our desire to affirm something good about humanity, but the incredibly realistic view of humanity that there's so little to affirm. And it's this tension that Jesus is holding in this text when he talks about judgment. If you want to be free from the effects of brokenness, we must realize the problem of sin needs to be dealt with. But right after he talks about that relief, if he were to judge the world right now in this moment, he says something else. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And here we see the heart of our savior in full, not in part. Yes, Jesus rejoices at the idea of immediate fiery judgment, but he doesn't do it now. Why? Because he's looking forward in a weighty sort of emotional experience to a baptism. Well, what is the baptism? We had one last week with Kalen. But so what is he talking about here? Is he talking about the same thing? Well, in the book of Mark, Jesus clarifies this more and he defines this baptism as the cross. This is astounding. Jesus, who is the one who will bring judgment, who is desirous for that judgment, is not immediately bringing it. Why? Because in an astounding turn of events, he himself is going to be judged, not for his sins, but for ours. He see, Jesus was the only good person, fully God and fully man without sin. What came out of his mouth was healing and blessing and salvation, not gross sin and negligence and violence. This tension weighed heavily 
on Jesus. Can you imagine that? Does this help you understand this time in your own life and how you live under a reality of a broken world? Jesus lived in the same tension we do. He knew that pains of this world would always remain until God made it new through judgment. But he also knew it to a degree we never could. We suffer under the weight of a sinful world and the weight of a sinful heart. But if you're a Christian, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you know that you suffer with an offer of deliverance before judgment. That we miss judgment because of what Jesus has done. But Jesus, who is our sacrificial lamb, lived in this broken world and knew there was hope for him. He knew that he would be risen in resurrected glory. He knew that the father would not always forsake him, but he knew that all of that glory, all of that peace, all of that restoration stood on the other side of the cross. The gospel is that you avoid the cross because Jesus didn't. Everything we would suffer, Jesus suffered in your behalf. Meaning he had to endure this life knowing a condemnation that every Christian is provided deliverance from through faith in him. And this weighed on his soul. One commentator said, the prospect of Jesus's suffering was a perpetual Gethsemane. The burden of Jesus the night before the cross was not a new weight. And we see that here. He is distressed because he endures all of this brokenness and he knows that it will be relieved not through the sacrifice of another, but only through himself. He knew for every soul he healed, for every gospel message he preached, that one day that bill would come true. And that the only thing that could pay it was his baptism on the cross, redemption through the Son. How did Jesus himself endure this distress? Well, Peter, who's listening to this very story, tells us in 1 Peter 2, when he says he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus himself reconciled his own experience in his own time with his own anxiety by placing all of it in the providence of the Father and trusting him. What do you think that looks like for you to do the same in a world where we feel this distress? To entrust ourself to the God who has promised reconciliation through the cross. As Jesus himself faithfully lived in this age of crisis by trusting in the providence of the Father, he wants to prepare us for a same mental battle. And this is where Jesus goes next. This is our second point. This is the crisis. And Jesus in this middle section is going to give us three examples of a crisis and then a solution to it. And all three of these examples are preparing believers for a reality of one thing. Maybe you picked it up when it was read earlier. That's the issue of division. Jesus first speaks to his disciples. That's those who believe in faith in Jesus Christ and not our own works. And he prepares them for what we see as relational division in following Christ. Relational division. This is where it goes when he says, do you think I have come to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. 
Now, it's important to note that the angels who proclaimed Jesus' death in this very same book, in Luke 2.14, did in, in fact proclaim glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Isaiah calls Jesus in a prophetic voice, the Prince of Peace. Jesus does come to bring peace. But during this moment of redemptive history, there is a difference between peace with God, peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased, and peace with the world. The promise of the cross is a real, intimate, abiding peace with God the Father through the Son. The promise of a new heavens and a new earth when Jesus comes back is that after the fire of judgment purges everything dangerous and difficult, every stubbed toe and every wicked thorn, that it is peace unending. But right now in Jesus' ministry, right now for us in the church age, peace with God does not mean peace with the world. James warns us about this in the book of James. And here Jesus paints the crisis of our relationship. To come to the Father through the Son might strain relationships between fathers and sons. Not because we shun them, not because we neglect Jesus' command to love them, not because we seek to cause them evil, but because they may respond with hostility to Jesus who is now Lord over your life. Jesus explains this in John 15 to his disciples. He says, when the world hates you, know it has hated me before it hated you. In my time working in campus ministry, I've seen this. I've seen how conversion to Jesus causes parents at worst kind of anxious hand-wringing, or at best anxious hand-wringing, and at worst causes them an absolute sense of despair when their child who is sent to get an education to become a profitable doctor or lawyer is now living their life with the goal of becoming a missionary, of not seeking to store up worldly wealth, of prioritizing above all things an eternal, intangible in this world kingdom. And there's strife. There's conflict. I've seen it show up from secular parents and who their kids are marrying and when they're marrying, and when they're having kids. It doesn't make sense from a worldly standpoint. Do you know that in other cultures around our world, in cultures like India or Indonesia, Southeast Asia, that when a son or a spouse converts to Christianity, that the family publishes an obituary and holds a public funeral, literally declaring them to the watching world that they are dead to them that they are a ghost walking and nothing more. These realities should break our heart. They should send us to our knees in prayer. They should fill our mouths with the message of the gospel, but they should not be unexpected in this time of tension that Jesus is talking about. This is the age of division. And Jesus is actually quoting here from the Old Testament prophet Micah, Micah 7. And look at this hope we have if we experience this on account of Jesus in Micah 7 verses 5 through 7. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. There's a book out there. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's called How to Win Friends and Influence Others. By worldly standards, Christianity is not a great step 
in that direction. Now, some Christians are jerks. Some Christians cause offense because they are arrogant and they are not repenting. They are brash. They do not embody Jesus and his attributes. But perhaps you have experienced opposition, not because of your sin, but because of your standing with Jesus. Maybe that even looks like an internal opposition of knowing that perhaps the person you want to date is separated, separated from you because they are not a believer. And we want to abide by a biblical version of sexual ethics. And in that moment, when you feel that tension, what does Jesus hold out to you? As he quotes Micah 7, he holds out the same hope he modeled in 1 Peter 2, where he says this, wait for the Lord of your salvation. In the midst of this tension, trust the cross. Peace will come, but not in this world, but in Christ while we live in this world. And this is important as we get into the second point of division in this age where we see experiential division. Experiential division. What are we saying there? It sounds kind of academic. Well, it just means that our experiences are divided. As Jesus turned to the crowds in this text, he shows that our first impulse is not to interpret our life in light of who Jesus is, but it's to interpret life based off ourselves and what we think. It models what the writer of Proverbs puts it as leaning not on your own understanding. We don't naturally do that. We want to lean on our own understanding. We don't want anything else to interpret our experiences but ourselves. And he gives this example, verse 54 and 55. He says, you look at the clouds, and you know it's going to rain, and you respond accordingly. You know it's going to be hot, and you're not to be unprepared. This is how you know this wasn't written in Montana, um, because we don't have that assurance here. But maybe you've had things like this in your own life. Maybe your child missed a nap and you don't have to be Nostradamus to think that maybe you should curb your evening plans a little bit. Prepare. Maybe you have a naturally angsty boss. He shows up to work a little more frazzled than normal and you look out at his car and his bumper has a nice dent in it. You might interpret that and say, today might not be the day to go and talk to him about a raise. Might be a good day to keep my head down. And avoid a boss who's already upset. And Jesus is saying that we are all smart people. We naturally do that in so many spheres of life. Why then, Jesus says, is it so unconfident for you to look at the clear crisis in your life, the clear pain of sin, the clear hurting, the preaching of the gospel, the staying of immediate judgment, and to not reconcile first and foremost your lives in light of God's kingdom that explains all of this. And here we see how difficult it is to be blind to the simple command, seek first the kingdom of God. It is not our default, but it's something Jesus is saying we need to work on. You see, behind all of your experiences in life are an eternal reality. C.S. Lewis knew this and talked about this on a relational level. He says, there are no ordinary people. It is immortals with whom we joke, marry, and work with. Jesus is making the same point here. We never encounter an ordinary moment, only eternal ones. To neglect this without repenting is not simply to be a fool, but it's actually to be condemned as a criminal. This is where Jesus goes with an example of this in our next point that shows the legal division of this age, the legal division of this age. Pay close attention to this little parable that Jesus gives, and I want you to notice what we can assume about the accused in this text. So this is verse 57 through 59. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, 
Make an offer to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So it's the obvious assumption Jesus is making here. That of all the courtroom TV cases and all the Netflix documentaries in the legal world, this is the least compelling. Because it's a cut and dried case. This person is guilty. They have the evidence. It will not hold up in court. Jesus is saying, in light of that, then try to settle. Try to make yourself free from the crimes that you've committed. And you should do it now because once you get to court, it's game over. You have no case. You have no leg to stand on. It doesn't take a robust theologian to know that this little anecdote is a not-so-veiled picture how each and every one of us ought to respond before a holy and just God. Paul says in Romans that the wages of our sin is death. We are the criminal. We have a back tax of worship due the Lord that we cannot pay. We have stolen his honor. We have violated his house. Our sin has put his son on the cross and taken his life. Our argument will not hold up when we make it to court. But now, now is the time to settle those accounts. If you're one who's interested in Jesus, maybe seeking him skeptical, but still interested, I'm so glad you're here. I'd love to talk to you. I don't mean to pressure you. That is the worst way to make a decision for Christ is out of the pressure of another. But I do want to point out here that Jesus himself applies a pressure, a pressure of time. Now is the time. Do you know when this day before the judge will come? Do not assume that it will be next month or next year. But come right now. How confident are you that you have time remaining? Dear Christian, how confident are you that when you stand before this judge, that you will not be condemned? Is your faith holy and exhaustively in the gospel of Jesus Christ? You might say, can we have any certainty with what Jesus is showing us right now? Can you have peace amidst the division, both in our heart towards God and in our time against one another? And this is where Jesus says, yes, you can. And this is where he gives our final point in the crisis. This is hope in repentance. Look at Luke 13, verses 1 through 5. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus talks about interpreting the time, and so the crowd's like, okay, what about Pilate when he murdered those Jews up in Galilee? What do we make of that? And instead of talking about how those men were specific sinners that needed to die, or focusing on Pilate's specific sin as he being the only one with the problem, do you see what Jesus did? He broadened it to all of us. He says, just because you are relatively comfortable right now does not mean that you are safe. Peace with the world does not mean peace with God. The lack of stress in your life does not mean that everything is okay. The events of life do not merely highlight the problems of others. They highlight your own problem. Unless you repent, 
you, me, your great aunt Susie, all of us, unless we repent, you will likewise perish. Twice Jesus says that in this text. We will all stand before the crisis of the judgment seat of God and what hope will you have then? Only the hope of repentance in life. Dead men cannot repent. Repentance is for the living. What does it mean to repent? That's one of my most favorite examples or questions to ask guys I'm discipling because we all, we all know repentance, but have you ever tried to vocalize it? If we can't actually talk about it, maybe it's because we don't actually know it. So I often describe repentance biblically in what we see in two ways. Repentance is a change of heart and a change of direction. A change of heart and a change of direction. As a Tennessee Titans fan, I love watching men repent when they try to tackle Derrick Henry. Derrick Henry is one of the biggest and fastest running backs in the NFL. Uh, His height and speed, he runs with an applied force of 5,207 pounds. And so you could go look on YouTube and you could find grown men repenting at Derrick Henry. They're running down to tackle him. And at the end, they pull up and they act like they've got a sprained ankle. They kind of shift in the other direction. And commentators have a word for this. They call it making a business decision. (laughs) Jesus has a word for it. It's called repentance. Repentance sees the force of sin and it grieves it. It has a change of heart. But true repentance shows itself not simply by grieving and staying in the same lane, but by changing direction. We don't just feel sorry. We move the other way. We once thought that tackling sin was a good idea. And now we make it our business to try and avoid it because we felt the pain of it. The whole scope of your life is meant to bring you this change of heart and change of direction through grace in Jesus Christ. We must repent of our sins through faith in Jesus and rend the whole of our life to him. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, speaking to people who, like you, might assume that there's no need to repent. He says, do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, or impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is to be revealed. Why are you here right now? Why do you have life and breath and everything? How might you interpret this very moment in your life? Repent and believe in Jesus. That's your only hope. How might you move forward daily? Repent and believe in Jesus. What if you have already confessed faith in Jesus Christ? Repent and believe in Jesus. What if you sinned yesterday after you repented? Repent and believe in Jesus. The first thesis of Martin Luther's famous 95 thesis says this. He says, when our Lord and master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repent. This is our hope. This is our life. Relying not on our change, but on Christ's change in us. This experience is profound, Christ says. You are delivered from perishing. But do you know how? 
How do we understand the effects of our repentance? And here again, we return to considering closing the Christ part two. Look with me at Jesus's final parable in verses six through nine. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he, that's the vine dresser, answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So Jesus is actually returning again to Micah chapter 7 here, which opens describing a barren, fruitless vineyard. And the Jewish hearers of Jesus' parable in this day would have understood his point immediately because throughout the Old Testament, Israel was described as the vineyard of God. And as Jesus is preaching and teaching and the Jews are resisting him, they are proving that God's vineyard is barren of the fruits of faith and repentance. Later on in Luke, as we continue, Jesus is going to share the judgment that's going to come on Israel, specifically in the year 70 AD, on behalf of their rejection of this message. But this passage is not only in reference to Israel. Here we see Jesus' heart towards all. The opening verses of Micah 7 paint a stunning picture that the vine is bare and the fruit is gone. The natural state of our hearts, the natural state of Israel, the natural state of the church is not fruitfulness, but barrenness. That's why fire kindles. That's why the master is right and justified to cut it down. If this tree won't bear fruit, I will find a tree that will. But here we see the vine dresser who says, hold up, let me do some work. Here, just as we saw in the opening passage, Jesus introduces a pause for his work. Judgment is stayed by the work of Jesus, if only for a time. Now, this is a parable, so we need to be careful how we read it, because maybe you fall into a wrong thinking about the Trinity, when you read a passage like this, right? The Trinity is the Christian doctrine that there are three persons in one God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, co-equal in essence, not three gods, it's one God with three persons. And there's no division in the Trinity. And sometimes we think that, right? Maybe you've heard that the Old Testament displays an angry God the Father. And then in the New Testament, God has this like mid-eternity crisis, changes, sends his son, and he's gracious. This parable could perhaps lead to that false understanding that God is the angry vineyard owner. The son is there. He's boots on the ground. He's like, these guys really have it rough. Let's see what I can do. But let's not forget that Jesus is obviously speaking about himself here. And what, what did we see earlier? That Jesus himself is zealous for that same judgment. There's no division here. But instead what we're seeing is the era of a unique time. A time when judgment is suspended for the work of the vine dresser. The tension of the cross upholds God's rightful desire for righteous judgment and his holy desire for salvation and repentance. No worldly analogy, no worldly human illustration can ever reconcile those two things. But the cross can. And this is the work Jesus has left to do. He is going to till the soil of unbelieving hearts with the base of the cross. Both Israel and Gentiles will have an opportunity to respond on account of this work because on the cross, the work of the vine worker and the heart of the master meet. 
John Stott says this at the cross. He says, in the cross of Christ, justice and mercy kiss each other. God's justice is satisfied by the death of his son, and his mercy is extended to all who believe in him. The cross is the only place where justice and mercy can meet because it's the only place where God's holiness and love are both fully displayed. In the cross, God's holiness is vindicated, but his love is also triumphant. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus stays by merit of his own baptism and his own distress so that God's righteousness and God's love are both solved in Jesus. Look how Micah 7 closes. Jesus is thinking about Micah 7. Micah 7, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Brothers and sisters, the offer of that peace finds its fulfillment. The deferred taxes of sin are finally paid off in the cross of Jesus Christ. Judgment is a certainty. And Jesus says so himself. But one day the era of assessing fruit will be over and the axe will fall. But now, our Savior under the distress of the cross has put himself to work. Crisis is coming. Judgment will fall to all. But will you find relief in the crisis of the cross? Will you see that apart from Jesus taking this judgment for you, there is no hope. There is no steadfast love outside of Jesus Christ. There is no turning of God's anger apart from the cross. But if we find peace in the crisis of the cross, we find relief in eternity that changes everything about how we live in the present. We have right now the welcome of the Father. We have the embrace of the resurrected son. We have immediate intimacy with the spirit. You will reconcile yourself with the cross. One day, every tongue, every tribe, every knee will bow before God the Father. And in that moment, you will have to reconcile yourself. But right now, you can reconcile yourself by faith. You can come to him and repent through faith in Jesus. Jesus is at work today to produce what? the fruit of faith and repentance. And if we've done that, this becomes our daily bread. We put ourselves daily to the unity we have with the Father through the Son so that even when we're living in the age of division, we might endure because we know what our Christ has won. This world brings division. The end of our lives will end in division. Save but those who find unity through the vine dresser who gives his life, baptized by fire, so that all who believe might not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that we stand in both somber reflection of your judgment, but also joyful faith in salvation. Lord, we cannot understand what Jesus endured on the cross in full. 
but one day those who resist it will understand in part as they encounter their own judgment. So Lord, may the weight and warning of that produce in us faith. Lord, even today, for those who are seeking, for those who wrestle under sin, that they might confess that we are broken sinners and our only hope is in the perfect spotless lamb of God. Lord, fill us with the Holy Spirit and make us enduring, reliant witnesses. Help us to understand the difficulties of living in this age of division by clinging to the unity we have through Jesus, to one another in the church, and ultimately to the Father through the Spirit. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.